Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast still physically and emotionally broken from this year's election campaign. My name is Corey Hazelhurst. I'm a partner in propaganda with Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. Welcome back. What the, yeah, I was going to say this is weird, isn't it? It's, it's, it's nice to actually have you here rather than uh, me having to do uh, all of the uh, <laughs> the research, the hosting. And uh, turns out I can't remember what the intros and outros are meant to be every week still. Yeah, once you've been doing this for five years and you're a ruthless professional podcasting machine, not, no one could just step in, could they, and pun to such a, a great extent. <laughs> but I, I thought it, it was pretty decent. And thank you for stepping up while I um, ran boards in the pissing rain. <laughs> Don't forget the hail. There was also hail. There was hail. The hail on polling day was particularly bad. It was huge and, and hurt. I've never known hail to hurt as much as it did on polling day. Thank you also to Patrick, who stepped in. Thank you also to LJ. And particular thanks to LJ for stepping in, because I think LJ obviously realised the only way of getting me back was to talk complete and utter bollocks about Labour's positioning on Brexit, which means I now have to come back and tell him how he's wrong. <laughs> it's very 2021, actually, this episode, because although there's lots of Brexit news, it's being slightly overshadowed by current events, so we're not going to talk about Brexit in this one still. Instead, given that all the votes have been counted now in those bumper elections we had, a couple of weeks ago now was it like a week i can't remember days months we're going to have a look at how all the parties did and try and focus on some of the long-term trends that are going on rather than some of the old personalities Try and clunkily sort of start with the left, far left of the spectrum and go to the far right of the spectrum with the inevitable argument of, or oh, which party is left wing and who's more left wing than the other, and just assume, you know, and it doesn't really work the left right spectrum. It's a bit of a clunky framing. Yeah, as long as listeners are prepared to just accept our, our framing of parties positioning on the left right spectrum as just for the purposes of having a structure to the episode <laughs> rather than being a, uh, an, uh, a a final statement of, no, of course this party is more left wing than the other. We're going to start with the Greens talking of parties that are sort of on a lefty spectrum. So they had a net gain of 88 councillors. Uh, which is the second most of any party other than the Tories, but I think gained about 235. Particularly strong in the big cities. Sean Berry finished third in the London mayoral election with about 80% of the vote. Steve Caldwell, here, here in Birmingham, where we are, quite miserable afternoon in Birmingham. Steve Caldwell finished third in the West Midlands Metro mayoral election with about 6% of the vote. Also surging in Bristol and Sheffield. Greens now, I think, are helping govern Bristol in a coalition with Labour. And Scottish Greens also got their best ever election result. I think in Sean Berry as well, their co-leaders have said is that this it could be the breakthrough of the Greens trying to become Britain's third party. I mean, how likely do you think that is? I mean, given Britain's third party is currently the SNP, who have, what, 50-odd seats in, in, in Westminster? Nonsense. Um, <laughs> put, put, put bluntly. That's not to say this wasn't a good set of re- results for uh, for the Greens, but the notion that this is putting them on the breakthrough to become, uh, you know, the third party um, in, in the entirety of the UK is just pure spin on their part to try and give, keep their momentum going. 
All right, shall I ask you a less pedantic question then? Yeah, go on. To ask it a slightly different way, the Greens, the Greens have been polling sort of about the same as the Lib Dems in some of the national polling. And obviously mm-hmm. the, 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 the SNP is not, is way down on that national polling. Is there a chance, do you think, that this could be a springboard for the Greens to finish third in that UK national polling? and overtake the Lib Dems? Potentially, but it's one of those things where you, you have this, with the Greens especially, is that they are pretty much pulling from the same kind of vote pool as Labour are currently, I think. like Everywhere you've described as they've made gains are urban places with uh, which tend to be demographically younger, more, more likely to have more graduates. Yes, there's a lot of things that you can potentially tap into, um, which is, is, is great in terms of long-term prospects. But in terms of getting them above the Lib Dems, the Lib Dems are, because of their, where they do well, are pulling, pull, are pulling from a separate voter pool. Again, they're much, for the, for, for the most part, they tend to be in Tory facing areas rather than Labour facing areas. I, I, th- I feel like it's something that could happen, but it's going to be because Labour screwed up rather than the Greens did something well. Oh, well, that's very reassuring then. A slight caveat to that is actually there are a few places in small towns where the Greens did pick up seats. So they picked up in Alderston West in Cumbria, in Duffield and Belper South in Derbyshire. That's particularly exciting because my granddad used to play cricket for Duffield Cricket Club. So shout out to Duffield and also Braintree and Essex. So there are a few places where the Greens are picking up. A couple of reasons for that, as a sign of the fact that environmental issues are massively rising up the agenda. It feels like the Greens have replaced the Lib Dems as the non of the above party. Certainly anecdotally from some of the door knocking I've done in Birmingham over the past few years, I've been surprised at the amount of times I've gone to a door where the person is voter ID is UKIP and they say they're going to be voting green, which again feels like that that protest vote, which Charles Kennedy's Lib Dems had a very good uh, handle on. Uh, then a lot of that protest vote went to UKIP. Now UKIP's fizzled away. A lot of that vote's now gone to Conservatives, as we'll talk about later. But I think the Greens are picking up a lot of that sort of anti-politics vote. The other thing is um, JL Partners did some polling of uh, why voters voted for particular parties or didn't vote for particular parties. The top reason given for Greens, Lib Dems and other parties was having a good local candidate. feels like the Greens have done well in areas where they've had a really good local candidate who's worked a seat which might account for some of the other gains as well you know it's, it's not necessarily a new discovery that if you work seats and you have a good good strong local candidate you can kind of turn things uh, turn things around in in areas quite likely that's going to be an, an element of it i think especially in, in regards to those like for, for what to me seem like quite random places for the greens to to kind of make make gains certainly the greens have adopted a policy of trying to Pick a seat, work it, win it, expand, um, which is a very sensible strategy. Um, it's it worked well for the Lib Dems in the past. The real issue for them, I think, comes in trying to translate any of this kind of like local council gro- councillor growth up to actual kind of seats in Parliament. Just think about the German Greens. It's a very different type of Green Party in Germany. And obviously, Greens in Germany rising high in the polls at the moment. I think some for second... They might even have topped one random poll, though I think that might have been a bit of a dodgy sample. Pression you get, but certainly you look at figures like Joschka Fischer, a very different politi- green politics to someone like Caroline Lucas. But also in Germany, they have a proper voting system. Something that has meant that they've got quite large votes in London and the West Midlands is the fact that we use the supplementary vote to elect our mayors, um, which means there is at least some preferential um, system where certainly the underperformance, relative underperformance, you should say, of Steve Khan seems to be partly because 
a lot of people assumed he was going to win and wanted to give the, Gina, the green a cheeky first preference and then vote Labour second. The government's talking about abolishing the supplementary vote system, having mayors only elected by first past the post, which probably not great for a number of reasons that we won't talk about now. But I think one consequence of that might be you see Greens not doing as well in those elections, which, uh, again, it might have a bit of a knock on. And um, be interesting to see if they do try and target some of those parliamentary seats in Bristol, because certainly trying to break out of just ha- having a single seat. I know Thangham Devonairs in Bristol was one of the ones they tried to target. And then I think she got a majority of about 418 million or something. Politics is volatile. Certainly voters' choice is much more volatile than it was, especially in, in larger cities like Bristol. So so one to watch. Moving on then down our down our spectrum, we're gonna quickly touch on on Labour's results. Not for a long time, because obviously you and LJ talked most about mostly about this last week. Obviously, you recorded that pretty early on Saturday morning, didn't you? And since that came in, actually there's some pretty decent results came in for Labour. So picked up the West of England mayoralty. Uh, probably helped by the fact that even Boris Johnson couldn't remember the name of the Tory candidate. The, Tory, the, the incumbent Tory mayor, <laughs> several times Boris Johnson was asked, what's his name? And nothing. So um, the voters obviously couldn't remember his name either. I've forgotten his name. I looked it up before and can't remember. Um, also, I think picked up the mayor of Cambridgeshire, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Which is which is lovely. Also gained councillors in Chipping Norton. Again, that's that's the blue wall. Remember the blue wall listeners, because we'll be talking about that later. As we've talked about Sadiq Khan being related, Andy Burnham, who where's he mayor for again? Uh I, I believe it's somewhere up north, isn't it? Um, I think, yeah, yeah, the yeah, north. Yeah, anyway. yeah, so, yeah, just, just the north. Um, and in Wales, Labour's ever best ever result in Wales, where you've got Labour incumbents who are perceived to have done well, Labour's prospered and again we're not going to talk too much about brexit but interestingly in wales labor in wales able to win over brexit voters strangely not by apologizing for any policy on brexit they ever had um but actually by offering meaningful economic change in policies which is is interesting isn't it (laughs) turns out not repudiating your entire last five years isn't necessarily an electorally winning strategy a very mixed bag isn't it one of those where significant improvements on the result in 2019 you can see the the sort of voting coalition is is beginning there but the fact that you you have lost seats like hartlepool shows it's not quite general election winning yet but baby steps i think lj pointed out in in, in last week's episode that there was a uh, like if you actually look at the vote share percentage that that Labour got versus what it was previously it still shows us up on where we were um there's there's lots of little things that you can you can see as oh potential green shoots the problem it's still not enough to going to be over enough to overturn a conservative majority Scotland and the SNP the SNP needed 65 seats for their majority and in a system which is specifically designed not to give parties a majority they received 64 seats so just short interesting thing I think here is, so there's a couple of things, isn't there? One of them is they do have an independence for majority because of the good performance of the Scottish Greens, where I think got about eight seats. But there's also evidence here of anti-SNP tactical voting. Lots of evidence of Labour to con shifting or con to Labour vote shifting to try and unseat SNP MSPs. We've got a 12 point shift from Labour to Conservative in Dumfrieshire to try and get rid of the SNP MSP. The 12 percentage shift from Labour to Lib Dem in Willie Rennish seat as well as leader of the Scottish Lib Dems looks like in places like Dumbarton and Aberdeenshire Aberdeenshire West that might have been what denied the SNP their majority because usually the SNP don't get a lot of votes from the list system they rely on the constituencies feel like that might have a massive 
role to play in a future general election. Because one of the things that's been obvious from sort of 2017, 2019 is that that anti-SNP tactical voting, it's not been clear who to vote for. So there's, I think that's particularly interesting. The, the appearance of having a proper single candidate or a single party that in a constituency you can just go, no, this is the anti-SNP candidate has the potential to make an awful lot of difference. It's not going to wipe them out, but there's going to be a, a significant number of seats, I believe, where where they could cut away at the number of MPs that uh, that they have in Westminster. The authority of the SNP and the Scottish government is derived from Holyrood, not from Westminster. Um, so it doesn't necessarily affect like the power or, or, or anything like that that they have, but it does impact on their momentum and how they can move forward after that point. And also makes a massive difference to the composition of the parties at Westminster as well, because mm-hmm. back in 2017, the reason why Theresa May was able to stitch up a deal together with the DUP and get some sort of majority is because of the 12, I think about 12 seats in Scotland that the Scottish Tories won. And again, if you're looking, if you're the Lib Dems looking at trying to build out, you know, you're probably looking at 20, 30 seats, you might want to try and win. Um, Labour famously unlikely to win the majority without Scotland so maybe there's some case for for Labour picking up a few more Scottish seats behind Ian Murray um, the, like Asterix the only only one holding out against the invading hordes you can definitely see just some of the stats in the Scottish election survey about the uh, the realignment of voting in Scotland by independence um, so 92% of voters in Scotland opted for a party that shared their views on independence a massive, massive realignment there. We should also mention George Galloway's party got no votes. Uh, uh, neither did Alex Salmond in Alba, got about 1% of the vote. Uh, something I found interesting from the Scottish election survey is that they ask voters, when would they be a mandate for another independence referendum? It's something like 18% say that the, there's already a mandate for an independence referendum. About 28% say it depends on the result of the election. About 26, 27% say that no election would be able to give you a mandate for that. And 26% of people don't know. So not only are polls incredibly tight with, I think, more showing anti than, than not to independence, just the even the interpretation of those polls, the interpretation of this election result, massively split. I feel like it's harder for Nicholas Sturgeon and Boris Johnson actually because I feel like Boris Johnson is just going to say no whereas for Nicholas Sturgeon it doesn't look likely that pushing for independence now would be an incredibly risky gamble so how do you do that while keeping a lot of your party on side it's gonna be quite interesting to watch I think. Yeah, I mean, there was um, some polling, this was a, a few months back, I think, which essentially said that the um, situation in regards to the Scottish independence referendum was a giant game of political chicken between um, Westminster and uh, and the SNP, where whoever, not even blinks first, but whoever is kind of like makes a move first, loses. Um, so if, you know, the Tories say no we're not going to allow a referendum in these circumstances that is enough to potentially shift public polling uh and public sentiment more towards independence so that but if the smp move forward and make the first step and go we are going to call this referendum because we have a majority in the parliament to do so the the public sentiment goes the other way it's not necessarily a clear mandate to be able to do it even though there are the seats to get it get it through it's a very tricky situation for Nicola Sturgeon to find herself in and 
how she kind of like threads the needle with all of this with her own party base is going to be interesting even though Alba was a, com- a kind of basically a busted flush I don't think they got any seats yeah no seats on 1.7 percent in the vote I'm here as a professional Steve to tell you it's pretty dire <laughs> the, the reality is there probably is a element of the SMP's base that would have kind of supported that kind of approach to things if it hadn't been led by Alex Salmond, who is the only man more unpopular than Boris Johnson in Scotland, which is an impressive feat. Um, So, yeah, if she can find a way to kind of like maintain this balance and still maintain the support of the SNP membership, then she is one hell of a political operator. Which, to be fair, I actually think she is one hell of a political operator. I do genuinely think she's one of the best at politics um, that we have in the in the country at the moment. From from that analysis, then, are we saying that Nicholas Sturgeon should sort of send the letter request, but very very slowly, maybe walk there or something, and then Boris Johnson just loses it in the post. It's a bit like when the the rent collector would come back in the day, and you kind of hide behind the curtains and pretend you're not there. Pretty much, yeah. And, and, and again, from, from the wider perspective of the Scottish public, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon has any dangers. Like, she could delay it and the Scottish public would be like, yeah, that's fine. It's just that hardcore nationalist base that makes up a, um, a reasonable section of the SNP these days, that, that other threat. And I, I, don't, I don't see anyone in the SNP getting rid of her. Like, that would be a completely bafflingly insane thing to do. I'll tell you what is bafflingly insane. The fact that since the 2015 general election, the Lib Dems have gained 804 council seats, which is the most of any mainstream political party. And hello, Mark, by the way. I mean, admittedly, I'm guessing a lot of that gain is because they were operating on a really low base. Not a lot of Lib Dem gains between 2010 and 2015. I forget why that was. Why was that, Steve? I can't remember, Corey. You know, it's, it was all a blur, you know, that, 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 that time period. A net gain of, of plus eight when I checked the BBC earlier seem to have done pretty well where they were dug in locally. So kept all the councils that they had control of before, gained St Albans from the Conservatives. So again, the Blue Wall, we are going to talk about the Blue Wall listeners. Not yet, obviously, but soon. But this is part of that Blue Wall. What I find interesting, and it's something that no one's talked about, about the Hartlepool by-election, it's going to sound like the most desperate piece of spin. But actually, the most interesting thing about the Hartlepool by-election is the collapse in the Lib Dem vote. Because in 2005, Steve, the Lib Dems were second in Hartlepool with 30% of the vote. There's a couple of things that are happening. One of them is where the Lib Dems have, have worked and got a presence, they've dug in. But as we've sort of said with the Greens, they've lost that um, none of the above sort of protest vote element. That In 2005, near the height of Charles Kennedy... They, they did have that. It's hard to see them as a national party. It, it's, it's only a few areas in which they are competing now. Yeah, so I think that is fair. Um, also, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing overall for the, for, the, for the Lib Dems to kind of lean into that at the moment. Obviously, you know, you need to talk about yourself as being a national party and, 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 and all of that. But I think in terms of the tactics, in terms of the strategy, as we said with the Greens, you work an area you win it, you expand. That's literally what the Lib Dems did in the 90s into the into the 2000s. There's generally going to be a lot of good feeling towards a lot of the, the Lib Dems in a lot of areas where they've worked before. So if you are just focusing on those areas again, 
and you can start to actually uh, make make gains where it matters rather than just boosting up performance nationally in a way that doesn't actually translate into anything in a first-past-the-post system, you're going to be in a much better position long-term. So I think much like the Greens, the, the, the Lib Dems can take that long-term growth that they're seeing, and unlike the Greens, there are actual seats that you can go that one, that one, that one, those are actually targets. Those are ones that you could see them winning properly. They have actually been Lib Dem in the past. And if you don't have that situation where, you know, you've got um, those Lib Dem Tory switchers who are being scared off by Corbyn or or whatever, and like maybe Brexit isn't as much as a, uh, of a kind of dividing line in those areas maybe, um, and they don't mind voting for a Remainer, uh, a party, then they can see some significant growth and not try and do too much, which I think is what they've tried to do a little bit in the past under Swinson. A good a good set of results for them, in, in, in all in all. Speaking, this, let's use this to sort of pivot to the Conservatives because you talked about Brexit not being an issue. Actually, in a lot of the seats they're targeting, Brexit is an issue, but it's part of the realignment of politics that we're seeing. So I've mentioned on previous podcasts, Brexit Land, which is an amazing book. Everyone should read it. And they talk about, uh, the blue wall. It's a bit smaller than the red wall. If the red wall is is essentially Hadrian's wall, it's not quite that impressive. It's not quite a garden wall size, but it's a, it's kind of a good size wall in a park, maybe Cannon Hill Park. And essentially it's a string of seats which voted Remain in the 2016 referendum, but have a Conservative MP. Uh, the Lib Dems did target quite massively in 2019. So there's the sort of seats that say uh, Dominic Raab holds I think even Uxbridge, I think Boris Johnson's seat sort of counts as one of these. As you've alluded to, when push came to shove, a lot of those Tory Remain voters plumped Conservative rather than Lib Dem in 2019. Uh, however, we are seeing Labour and the Lib Dems make a lot of gains in those areas. So uh, again, Rob Ford, Will Jennings as well, has done some good work in, in these areas. I realise we're starting our talk about the Conservatives now that Boris Johnson's a political colossus talking about all the areas they did work badly badly in. Desperate spin alert. The Tories are losing ground where you've got a high number of graduates, like a lot of these six have. Um, losing councillors in the southeast. And there was um there was a I think I think I'm not one of the county council leaders in the in the southeast who is conservative was talking about how because the conservatives are talking about all of the funding that the north is going to get that somehow the Southeast feels a bit left behind, particularly ironic. Conversely then, where the Conservatives did well, again, a lot of it seems to be because of incumbency. So Ben Hutchin won with 73% of the vote in Tees Valley, which I think we talked about last week. Uh, Andy Street won the mayoral election in the West Midlands. But particularly interesting, I think this one, Andy Street wins the mayoralty by about 55,000 votes, I think. Actually, Labour wins the Police and Crime Commission election. Same day, same electorate. I think the turnout was 31% for both. But Labour wins by about 35,000, 40,000. Those two elections are particularly interesting. We've talked about Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan as well. But one consequence, it feels, of mayoral elections has been for mayors to build up a bit of a personal vote and a personal mandate, which has been able to sort of expand beyond party politics. And I think Andy Street in particular is an example of that, who, someone who really pretends really hard not to be a Tory on his, you know, £1.3 million campaign with leaflets paid for by the Conservative Party, but he's not a Tory, Steve. 
Obviously not. If you look at his, no, you look at his leaflets. I think in the micro dot in the final full stop, there's a little conservative tree. Apart from that, I, I think you'll find there's not a single use of the blue color blue on any of his leaflets. They're all green. So that, that means he can't be a Tory, obviously. Have I told you about a guy called David Cameron, Steve? Um, he tried that too. He was last seen at a House and Commons Select Committee. I suppose the other thing is, as we've said, a wider view of this is um, we've seen boosts to incumbents all across the board. We saw it to the SNP. We saw it with Labour in Wales. We've seen it with a lot of the mayors. We've seen it with the government as well. I talked about the JNL polling. Good response for the pandemic. I think it's the second best reason for why voters voted Conservative. The top one was that the Conservatives seemed comp- competent, which I thought was particularly interesting, given that Labour's framing of attack on the Conservatives the past year has all been about incompetence. Um, yeah. That was particularly interesting. And again, it's the government being given for that vaccine rollout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for for, for the Tories especially, the, the success of the vaccine rollout uh, it is the for, at the forefront of everybody's minds. Like the elections are held at a time where we are starting to slowly but surely come out of the um, of lockdown um, more and more. You know, we're getting closer and closer to being able to get back to normal life. They just even though the Tories are not necessarily the ones who have actually masterminded the vaccine rollout by virtue of being in government and not screwing it up they have reaped the electoral rewards from it. And um, the other thing, just to sort of wrap up on the far right of the spectrum, is actually far right parties did pretty shockingly. I think Lawrence Fox in London got about one vote for every mainstream media article written about him. There were a lot of other far right candidates, sort of Britain first type, but there was no significant gain everywhere. I think partly because that that sort of vote, essentially the Conservatives have hoovered up, if we're going to be honest, and, and pushing a lot of cultural war issues. You could see pushing cultural war issues in the week of the election. I mean, I'm not really sure that Boris Johnson has any identifiable political beliefs, but I think something we can all agree on is the reason he wanted to be Prime Minister was to launch a gunboat. And blow me down, Steve, if we didn't get the chance to do that in the week of the election, sending it out to fight the French, of all people, he must have been so excited. I'm still not entirely sure what that gunboat was meant to have achieved. I'm still fish, in- Steve. It's just meant to achieve fish. Good to know. British fish. For British workers? Wait, what? <laughs> no, actually, that's not true because we sell them to Europe. So <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. British fish for European... Well, we, 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 European did sell them to, we did sell them to, to Europe. We don't anymore. That's been a major thing for a number of the fishing industries is that we can't do that. So <laughs> I believe shellfish, are especially the ones that have been massively uh, screwed over by this. They are not happy with uh, with the government at the moment. The other thing is that the 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 stories, uh, the very negative stories about Johnson, the last couple of weeks of the campaign about sleaze, about wallpapers, about offices. Yeah. And I know there's there's a and I, ha- I haven't heard that podcast yet, um, so I'm kind of going blind into whatever twenty minute rant LJ is going to have. It's going to be very entertaining, I'm sure. Um, but what does seem to be true is that those stories only cut through amongst those who are already politically engaged and doesn't seem to have registered among a lot of the wider public. That's according to some YouGov polling anyway. And it's, again, that's not the same as saying they're not important. It's not the same as saying they won't matter in the future. Um, but it does seem, it doesn't seem to have affected the vote a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, th- I think at the time when me and LJ had that discussion, that that polling hadn't hadn't been released. Um, but I think it kind of does kind of d- demonstrate the, the the just the the fact that most people don't care about Watergate, uh, Wallpapergate. They do, or they've not even heard about it necessarily. It, it just 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 go to show just how hard it is for any one particular story to cut through. That doesn't mean in and of itself it's not important, and that you should and that Labour shouldn't kick up a fuss in in some way about it. Um, but you need to do it in a strategic way, a tactical way, and maybe not end up kind of playing, making an unobvious kind of political jab by going to John Lewis to look at wallpaper, Keir Starmer, um, in a way which then just makes you look slightly politically daft. Oh, I, don't, I didn't have any problem with that. It's like going to Greg's after the Omni Shambles budget. Like, <laughs> also related to that, I suppose, is the in terms of the the... the, the the far right failure of the is the failure of anti-lockdown parties as well. So there's a again, just thinking about potential issues in the future. And it's it always seems to be a certain section of the Tory right of the of the tabloids as well who are, are calling for measures to be gotten rid of sooner than the official sort of map of the rollout. Um, but it is really striking that there's not much popular appetite for parties who actually stand on those views the same actually um and i noticed um last week there's a bit of a conflict about low traffic neighborhoods and again there were a couple of people stood in london on an explicitly anti-ltn ticket who got half a percent of the vote again i think it's a bit of a reminder that a lot of the the culture war issues that are talked about a lot on twitter are not really resonating with ordinary people and that, that goes as much on the far right side as it does for the people arguing, giving their Labour hot takes on Twitter right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's part of that increasing like Americanization of, of political culture in the UK, where we just seem to try and we, we see what's happening in the US and we just try and adapt it and, and kind of like fit it to, to the UK context. The US has a significant problem in terms of anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers in the form of QAnon and, and those sorts of those sorts of things. And like the media wants to create something like that in the UK because it's really, it, it drives clicks, it drives engagement. So they give, uh, you know, uh, uh, time and, and, and inches to the likes of Lawrence Fox. Um, because, you know, he drives engagement, he drives inches, and, you know, it, it, it all, all equals ad revenue for him. But Britain isn't America. You can't just copy and paste what's happening over there and their narratives and, and make them fit the UK context. Um, both the left and the right seem to be trying to do that. I think because, weirdly, America is both an example of the success of the left in terms of Biden kind of winning the presidency and governing with a, a relatively radical kind of like approach, but also a success for the for, for for the right, given Trump, the Republican Party, its current state and what it's focused on, all of those different things. So they can both both sides of the political spectrum can draw something from it and try and apply it to the UK. Genuinely, I think if we weren't, if you didn't have people trying to br- bring that American civil war <laughs> element into the UK. Um, in, in the media, you wouldn't have Lawrence Fox even. I don't think I'd know who he was um, beyond, you know, that dude from, was it Morse? Was he no, Lewis. Lewis. And yeah. he was quite good in Lewis. It's why it's so disappointing. Yeah. But yeah, I wouldn't know who he was outside of he was that one from 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 Morse, which I've never really watched. Lewis. Uh, yeah, I know. I know what his name is. But... <laughs> no, it's the, the programme is the... <laughs> so the two different programmes. <laughs> It's not necessarily a new thing, though, is it? I suppose no. you know you've seen the 
Tony Blair's emulation of the New Democrats in the 90s and um, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 80s. You know, it's, um, yeah, but I, I just feel like they, like I think Thatcher and Blair adapted it to the British context a lot more. Whilst I feel like at the moment, it's just, we're going to take the exact same talking points, the exact same things, and just run with them rather than actually go, what are the lessons here? Mm, Which but, in some yeah. ways is good because it means you don't get, get idiots like Lawrence Fox doing well in elections. Um, and apparently his new plan is to go and start up a pub with the guy who's in charge of the reform party, I think it is. He's hit that point of his midlife crisis where he's, where he's opening up a pub. It's going to be a bastion to free speech, Corey. A bastion. If you want to spend your midlife crisis funding a bastion to free speech listeners... You could always support us on Patreon, couldn't you, Steve? Oh, that was a smooth, smooth segue. Beautifully done. <laughs> Still got it. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. Uh, your, your, your time off has, uh, has not dulled your skills. <laughs> you could indeed head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne and throw us a few quid every, uh, every month to help fund the podcast, which will uh, allow us to keep running. Um, everything goes towards our costs. Uh, and uh, yeah, you'll gain access to unique episodes, uh, blogs and things when we do them as well as roundtables. It all... It's all good fun and games, and there's nice small little community over there. Head over, give it a look, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll see you there. Our website is at notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram, design the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper, compost our theme tune, Pookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting it. Everyone.